0: Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Complementary Training Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking to Marco Altini, the creator of HRV for Training app and machine learning expert. Marco provided tremendous guidelines for my recent injury prediction model and have motivated me to learn more about Bayesian models. Marco also posts regularly on the topics of HRV, machine learning and tracking data. In this podcast episode, we are covering the following topics. How did Marco end up making HRV for training and being generally interested in HRV and self-tracking data? Reliability of using iPhone camera to track HRV Evaluation of HRV signal Measuring position, saturation issues, routines, frequency of HRV measurement Training recommendations based on HRV data and why it's not good to jump to -to day-to-day twitches in the data HRV as part of the overall monitoring system or the importance of context Machine learning versus traditional statistics And Marco's recommendations for good sources of information and books I want to thank Marco and our sponsor, SmarterBase, for making this episode possible. Enjoy the listening.
1: SmarterBase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts, and research. SmarterBase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, AmigaWave, EliteForm and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customisable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, SmarterBase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com.
0: So you're currently in San Francisco, right? Where are you originally from?
1: Um, So from Italy. I I was um, in Italy until I think I was 25. So until m- after my master's, um, so I'm, uh, let's, I was studying in Bologna, I guess you, maybe you know that. So like northern side of Italy, I'm from a place, which is like a small town closer to the, um, to the Adriatic coast. And then after my master's, I went to the Netherlands. So studied there, uh, for my PhD stayed there six years. And now I've been two years in San Francisco more or less like The last six months only I've been actually living here all the time before I was going um, back and forth because I was still finishing my PhD and then my wife was in Belgium and in the Netherlands was like total mess. Now it's a bit more stable
0: situation. It's a a bit, uh, so you're pretty much living the startup life.
1: I was living it even more last year probably when I was sleeping where I was working in the startup house here. We rented. Uh, now, luckily, we raised some money, so I can stay in some other apartment, which is already a bit better. I don't know if you watched the um, Silicon Valley, the TV show. It was uh, pretty much that that kind of, um, life, of life situation. So it's like you know, twenty-four-seven, everyone at the house. It was intense and fun, but you know, after some time, it was very tiring. So you got to. Um, Get to a bit of a more stable situation. Yeah, that's great. J- just to let you know, I already started recording,
0: so <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll, I'll probably cut out the the first part. Sure. I think it's it's much easier uh, to just you know start chatting instead of introducing. And I pretty much hate that part, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. So yeah, um, so it, we already started discussing. So um, uh, yeah, you, you you pretty much mentioned that uh, you've been studying machine learning. Uh, how come you, you know, you ended up in in sports? Did you did you do sports yourself before, or um, so
1: what's the, what's the story behind the the blend? Basically, well, I've been doing many sports, like never at, at any good level, you know, like from. Uh, football or soccer, I would say, uh, rugby, or uh, what did I do? Uh, well, some team sports as a kid, and then I started more like individual stuff, and um, uh, a lot of running recently and cycling and stuff like that. So when I, I guess the, the interest was a bit a combination of, you know, what I like to do in my free time and the fact that I was, I ended up working at IMEC um, after my, my master's. And the time, basically it's an R&D institute in, in Europe where they develop technology. So you, I was um, working on all these wearable sensors already like six seven years ago that measured um, physiological data like you know you get a full ECG and then you start from there and heart rate and variability and start all these other parameters and accelerometer data phones. So the, um, the whole team there was basically building these prototypes that then were used by other people that were working more on, say, on processing or, or data science to actually develop algorithms on this. And um, the, the way my, devel- my work developed was then uh, all around physical activity. So I guess I started a bit there, you know, with indirect calorimeters and measuring energy expenditure Measuring uh, VO2 max and then developing algorithms that could um, estimate these parameters uh, more accurately than what you had, you know, at that point in state of the art. So um, a bit of a combination, I would say, of uh, all these factors and um, the fact that, you know, then I also started a PhD, so I could really focus on um, doing this work on uh, algorithms to estimate energy expenditure and fitness using wearable sensors. And yeah, I guess, you know, it matched well what I like to do outside of my job and in my job. And pretty much that's, uh, yeah, how all of this uh, work uh, around physical activity started, which was not targeted to athletes, but um, the, the general population, I would say. So uh, like the average person, the, the, the whole goal was... Uh, can you get something more interesting than what devices measure today, like steps or even energy expenditure? Um, they reflect, let's say, your behavior in terms of physical activity. But I thought what was interesting was to see how your behavior actually changes your health status and fitness, which you can measure. Uh, let's say you can have a proxy to that using cardiorespiratory fitness, which is, you know, measure of aerobic capacity and a good health marker. So I, you know, created these methods that you would just wear a sensor and it would recognize your activities and what's your submaximal heart rate at certain activities, and then use that to estimate your VO2 max and basically track how your fitness would change over time without actually having to do submaximal tests.
0: And how can that be applied to, say, you know, higher level athletes?
1: so I think the principle is the, still the one of using um, some maximal heart rate as a, an estimate of aerobic fitness so you could do that um, also for runners, so, so I think actually uh, Garmin or Firstbeat, these companies do something very similar um, and as a matter of fact it's even, I would say it's even simpler uh, to try to look at these variables for um, sports like running because you get variables like uh, because you have gps data often right so you get uh, i don't know at what speed they're running and what are the conditions and elevation and what's the heart rate at a specific intensity which is much more similar to what you would collect in the lab while in free living on regular people you have to you know analyze like low intensity activities without gps data so we had, for example, to recognize, you know, when a person is walking at what speed the person is walking, what's the submaximal heart rate at different speed, and then extrapolate that to what the submaximal heart rate would be if they were hypothetically running. So basically, all the modeling, you can, you don't need to do that if you already have running data. So for certain sports, I think um, you already have. Uh, decent estimates of uh, VO two max or uh, fitness um, based on some maximal heart rate, which is a bit more complicated to bring like to the average population to the regular people that would not exercise. I think from
0: physiology, uh, from my memory, if my memory serves me well. There was a test called PWC one hundred eighty. Uh, so it's like a submax test, and they also want to extrapolate. Mm-hmm. Um, the velocity of running or heart rate. No, sorry, velocity of running at certain heart rate. So you, you run incremental um, yeah. tests at submax velocities and then you assume linear relationship and try to extrapolate to a higher intensity. And it's yeah. pretty much used with um, elderly uh, or, or I would say fragile um, yeah. subjects. So you want to try extrapolate what's going to happen Uh, at 180 uh, beats per minute and things like that. So it's quite similar uh, rationale, right? Yeah,
1: it's it's all based on the same principles and to try to do that automatically basically and uh, use submaximal heart rate as a measure of fitness as there is quite a strong link there. So it can be uh, a useful, I would say useful information for anyone more than just uh, objectively measure physical activity like steps or calories or other variables you can get out of these uh, wearable sensors
0: let's let's jump to um um heart rate variability thing um, yeah. um you know you you created the h r v for training app yourself and <clears throat> what made you start researching heart rate variability and you know how come you you wrote the app yourself
1: so um Well, during these PhD years, then I was doing a lot of uh, self-experimentation, I would say, with indirect calorimeters, uh, with energy expenditure. And then again, you know, while running and variables you start looking at uh, is always physiological data and some maximal heart rate. And you start thinking other ways you could use this data. At the same time, you know, like I was measuring a lot on, on myself and running studies on, uh, I don't know, the usual clinical studies, you know, 20 people, 50 people when I had many. And I was doing, I think, interesting work in, in trying to understand how to interpret its physiological data. But it was very limited to the fact that I always had to use these prototypes. So, you know, everything you make uh, stays there, right? You can write a paper and that's it. So I don't know, I had a bit of a... Drive, I I think, to try to make something that people could use. And again, it was also good timing. Like iPhones were getting better just a couple of years ago. And then eventually, I don't know, I had a background in computer science engineering. So I I said, okay, let's try to make some apps and see, you know, what can we measure? What we can get out of these sensors? Can we make something that people can use? And like, I made, I don't know, 20, 25 apps that never got anywhere, like many for runners and um uh, measuring different parameters and trying to estimate different things and monitor all things of your lifestyle, maybe a bit too broad and then eventually um, I ended up with artery variability I don't even know exactly like what brought me there it's still I would say you know I worked so much with ECGs and other intervals that you know there is so much you can do even in the if you start looking at only at healthy subjects, still with a with an ECG, you can work on recovery, you can work on sleep, you can work on so many different applications. And with a phone connected to a sensor, probably the the most practical application was to start looking at HRV, because you can get you know good data in short, limited period of time, and keep things simple for a, for a user. So I started working on that developed the first app that we're working like other regular apps just with um, chest traps. And then uh, I think that was almost three years ago already. There was this app that um, the MIT uh, was developing to get heart rate out of a camera. So that got me thinking, right? I was always working with this data and it was like, can you also get HLV out of this camera? Because if you can do that, then you completely remove the, the need for the sensor, also for all these applications related to training load and recovery. So work on that. And you know, that worked quite well, as you know by now. So yeah, I guess that's when we made some decent progress with hrp for training and to you know make it simple for people to use and increase compliance. Um, and so. So you recently Published or
0: finished the reliability of the camera compared to the strap, right?
1: Yeah, so we did the study. We haven't published yet. Uh, but yeah, the paper is being written, so hopefully that is going to be out sometime soon. I do have the data, so. That, that's uh, that's pretty good. So the camera is something. At, at the beginning, we always tested with respect to chest straps. So we use uh, Polar's as uh, as reference, which before we I validated other times against ECGs. I mean, the like the standard Polar h seven is an extremely good sensor. And but this time we also collected uh, full ECGs and uh, Polar data, camera data. Uh, while lying, while sitting, uh, post exercise, so we did we did quite a few tests, um, and yeah, so we, I'm I'm very happy with the data also because we included about 30 people, so you know you get a very broad range of uh, MSSD or other HRV values from you know from very small to very high variation that you can you know start evaluating how your algorithm works under different conditions and we use that also to make some small improvements in how we handle artifacts because you know when you have um, certain athletes or certain people which have much higher variability than the average population or even the average athlete. Um, you cannot use standard methods that are used even in clinical practice just to correct for artifacts because we found that those methods basically are a bit too strict and then you end up discarding uh, intervals which are actually good ones simply because there is so much natural variability which is not actually artifacts or ectopic bits. It's simply how the data is. So you need to to correct differently for um, for issues, so that was an interesting study. I hope we'll get it out sometime soon. That's a good news then. Yeah. Uh, so
0: <clears throat> regarding the heart rate variability signal or EEG, what what are the different metrics that are commonly being used as you know proxy to uh, variability, and uh, what what metrics are more you know reliable, and um, you know th- there are certain time you need to actually measure to to make sure that the signal is right to, you know, minimize the noise.
1: Yeah. yeah. so um, there's, there is indeed many different ways that we can, uh, let's say, come up with uh, an HRV number, these HRV features, uh, some time domain features, frequency domain features. I think, um, in general, it seems in the last four or five years, the sports science community settled on um, lmssd which is a feature which is a time domain feature Um, i think personally that's the best choice so i'm glad we are going this way for for many reasons apart from practical ones which is that this is well easy to compute but also it's very standard how to compute it so that means that we can then compare studies and you know learn from each other, you can compare literature even with your own data, you can compare different studies among each other, understand how this data is uh, evolving in different athletes under different conditions. So that's definitely valuable. Uh, Also this feature is like independent of time, you know, like if you measure for a minute or if you measure for five minutes like you normally do in studies then it would still um, get the same numbers out. So this was not the case before when we had most of the research using uh, frequency domain features, like, I don't know, the high-frequency power, which is also representative of uh, parasympathetic activity, similarly to an So these features are typically highly correlated. But to get frequency domain features out... Um, Basically, there are many more steps and even how you interpolate your data or how you window it or how you compute things um, makes results different, even if you eventually decide to normalize or not your feature. Um, and yeah, that makes, I think, things much harder to interpret, to replicate, um, to compare. So uh, yeah, I would say right now that the feature we use is MSSD also in the app. Typically, we translate it into something which is maybe a bit more uh, easier to read, like a number between, you know, like 6 and 10 or something like that. Other apps also do something similar, I don't know, in the 100 range, but it's at the point is the same. Everyone is using MSSD and converting it, but that's the metric, I think, that you also can read um about on papers and stuff so that's uh yeah the uh, the main number we use like to quantify uh recovery and stress. and then regarding the um, let's say the measurement protocol uh I think what's best is really to try to do it in standard conditions or consistent conditions so it doesn't really matter if you measure I think two minutes or five minutes or if you measure lying or standing, um what matters is it that you try to do always the same because all of these different factors uh have can have some influence. So as long as you are consistent, you will get good data that then you can interpret
0: um over time. So the, the measuring position doesn't matter much because uh, some so, so let of the authors warn warn about say uh, saturation yeah. with high-level yeah, athletes.
1: That is true. So uh if you have a particularly low heart rate, then yes, I would say maybe sit or stand because, you know, you introduce that little extra stress on the body. Uh, but we are talking about really heart rates like low 40s or even lower. Um, in that case, yeah, it might be a better idea not to lie down. For the vast majority of, uh, of the population, I would say still uh, it's no problem even to measure while well lying down. So what would be the best...
0: Say routine. Uh, 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 I read somewhere that you know, if you wake up early morning and then you go, you know, do your thing in the toilet, you you might get yeah. different readings. Uh, and <laughs> and also, for example, if you drink water or or, or you know, leak water or whatever, um,
1: yeah, yeah, uh, it might so, change the readings. Yeah, so I, I was talking, I think, with uh, James Heather about this. He was saying indeed that uh, if you need to empty the bladder, you should do that. So yeah. You include that in your routine and then maybe go back to bed, wait a minute that, you know, your body is relaxed again because of the walking. Uh, but for the rest, yeah, uh, I would say no, no food or water intake before definitely no coffee intake. Uh, try just to keep it as simple as possible. Typically wake up, still in bed. If you don't have to go to the bathroom, just measure, otherwise go, come back, rest a minute and measure. That's probably the more, um, standard condition you can get and you know, the least affected by uh,
0: other factors. What about the waking time? So someone have a hectic schedule and someone wakes at 6 AM yeah. and the next day 8 AM and things like that. How yeah. does that affect the heart rate? I variability? think
1: that also can be a problem like uh, while HRV changes during the day or you know, due to circadian rhythm and so, so ideally you would want to measure at a similar time of the day, I haven't uh, experimented systematically on this, so I wouldn't know exactly what to expect. But definitely, trying to stay, you know, around the same times during the week, uh, even weekends, and have similar schedules, even you know, similar times to go to bed. In general, these kind of things helping getting more meaningful data. So I guess that's probably easier for athletes sometimes that they have more regular schedule than. Than other people. So, what about the frequency of
0: measurement? You know, what would be the lowest number that can give you, uh, I would say, power in, in making inferences in for your, you know, training status or you know, parasympathic status. So, I
1: think um, according to literature, like they looked at this a bit, and to get a decent baseline, they were recommending I think four or five recordings per week. Um, however, I would say really that. It's much better if you measure every day for different reasons. For, for example, uh, there is recent research um, from Andrew Flat where he looks at uh, how much your HRV is changing on a day-to-day basis. So if you have a week of data, right, you have an average, but you can also, you can have this average if you get every day the same number or you can get the same average if your HRV jumps around your average a lot on a day-to-day basis, right? So there is useful information also in how much your HRV is changing on a day-to-day basis. So if it is jumping a lot um, around or if it is more or less always constant. In particular, it mentions that um, when your HIV is less jumpy, it means that you probably adapted well to the current training problem you're, you're doing and you're coping well with training. While that's not the case uh, if it's jumping a lot around. So, if you measure every day, you can stop looking at this data as well. Otherwise, if you don't measure every day, you could get still a decent baseline and look at trends in that sense but you would lose some useful information.
0: Hmm, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of studies showing, uh, you know, besides uh, rolling average, they also show the uh, rolling standard deviation of the HRV, yeah. and that might exactly. be also quite meaningful. Uh, yeah, the, this next question is quite interesting, I guess, and something that interests me, interests me and a lot of strength conditioning coaches a lot is the training recommendations based on heart rate variability. So what I think what the community expects, expect is that, um, you measure HR, HRV and then you get say higher or lower score. And then you immediately know you should do a, you know, harder session or easier session Mm -hmm. where I still believe that's a pipe dream, maybe, and maybe, you know, Uh even impossible. Uh, what I believe as a strength conditioning coach is that we need to evaluate things more in a, a, say, medium term time. So not, something that's uh not day-to-day uh but kind of mm. uh see what's happening in in a say usual cycle yeah maybe maybe one or two or three more weeks and then adjust those medium-term cycles rather than um you know changing day-to-day um uh, the training prescriptions based on heart rate variability uh so yeah. what what's your What's your, um, you know, thought, thought about this?
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, I think that that's true. There is different ways definitely you can use this data. Um, so it, it is true that you have, um, let's say, you, typically in this data you reflect acute changes, which means that a very strong stressor will reduce your HRV. Uh, the day after and then you could use this information to make small adjustments even on a day-to-day basis. But uh, it is unclear if that's the way you wanna do it to optimize performance eventually. And some recent research actually uses exactly the same approach you mentioned. So while in the past, like the first HIV studies, they were prescribing training based on day-to-day changes like the latest studies that uh, managed to show some improvement in performance in runners over time, they were uh, looking um, exactly at uh, longer term trends. So instead of prescribing training based on day-to-day changes, they would see what's the, the rolling average, the baseline nature, we will call it. Uh, how is that going with respect to your normal values? Is that, you know, just flat or, going higher or is it going much down your normal values and if it was trending uh, badly so going down they would not prescribe the let's say an intense training block that they scheduled before and they would skip that for for certain athletes that were basically not in the ideal physiological state to do that so that was not you know day to day changes but simply looking at trends and Trying to schedule like macro training blocks uh, to eventually see if training harder only in an optimal physiological state would trigger optimal performance eventually, which is what happened. So definitely uh, something interesting and to look at is, I think, how to. Um, effectively implement interventions using this data. So I think it's quite clear that you measure physiological stress and that's related to many things from psychological to physical training. Uh, And you can use that even just, uh, you know, to be more aware of how things are changing and what is affecting uh, you or a player. But like to, to design the right intervention or to u- make use of this data in the best way to eventually optimize performance, I think is um, still a work in progress. And some of this recent research uh, looked very promising using this approach of indeed trying to understand more uh, higher level cycles and changes in baseline HRV and trying to use that more than, uh, you know, making small adjustments on a daily basis.
0: I guess we're dealing with, I would say, two complementary aspects of, you know, training is that uh, adjusting training to the individual, say, high or low days, but also making sure that individual adjusts to training. So uh, adjust to a volume that's that's needed or adjust to a a training block. So uh, a coach needs to juggle with, uh, you know, both aspects, I would say, top down and uh, bottom up.
1: Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, also, okay. because sometimes, yeah, you want to trigger those, uh, let's say, um, negative HRV or you know things going down because you increase training load. Like you can be totally fine, right? It's as long as you manage to balance that in a way that you don't bring your athlete to overtraining.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can you can prescribe, a say, three week or six week uh, period. You can experiment, and you probably are familiar with the fact that I have a. Pet peeve of, uh, agile methods <laughs> trying to, <laughs> to take some of the, from the agile development from IT to, um, yeah, training yeah. Periodization. So you might, you might prescribe a, a sprint in this case, a training block that could be two, you know, two to four or three to six weeks. And then you collect metrics and then you learn pretty much, uh, based on the patterns, what might suit particular individual, uh, better rather than jumping, you know, from, from, you know, day to day twitches in the data. Um, yeah. So you still want a little bit long, longer term, not long term, but longer term, uh, period where you actually try to make any causative mm-hmm. links between, you know, metrics and training being done and try to suit that to particular individual and yeah. objectives of the, you know, training block or training
1: plan, whatever. Um, yeah. I think also like, especially with HRV, that's very really important because what you see is really like, Uh, the data going through cycles. Like It's not that you're trying to optimize a metric and HIV should always go high or anything like that. You will see that it goes up and down based on many other factors that you start to understand over time and and then you can really make use of it. Um, I would say it's a bit more complicated than sometimes, I don't know, using heart rate. Even if you just look at uh, intervention studies on people that maybe were not active and then they start doing, I don't know, running training programs or cycling. Typically, uh, you see that there are other metrics which capture quite clearly uh, trends like, you know, increases in VO2 max, reductions in resting heart rate. Um, HRV I don't think works like that. It's it's, um, really a better tool To measure over time levels of uh, training load and physiological stress. And it will always try, you know, go through cycles that you can then interpret. So that means that you need to collect um, data longitudinally for a long time and very frequently. So uh, I don't think it makes much sense, for example, to collect just, you know, pre and post intervention data for this kind of parameters.
0: Yeah. Speaking, speaking of trends. uh um, I know that, you know, humans in general want, you know, black or white rules. Uh, okay. When it comes to heart rate variability, is increase always good or, and decrease always bad or there's more to it?
1: Yeah, there is definitely more to it. Um, in general though, I would still say like an increase means that, you know, your body is less stressed and typically is good. Uh, it is typically seen like during tapering or during periods of lower stress. Um, It is not always the case, definitely true. Uh, Some reason behind some case studies showing that um, HIV maybe was going down before uh, competition even during tapering might be um, due to uh, saturation as we talked a bit before. So it could be that for certain athletes with very low heart rate um, at lower heart rate, then HRD also goes down instead of uh, increasing linearly like you would normally expect. Um, So something in there, I think, however, that the more like the the real takeaway is that you should not just focus on this one metric, but try to bring in different metrics and trends. Um, Something uh, that we're looking at are, for ex- well, for, first of all, always in the context of training load, of course, but also physiological data, other parameters, um, heart rate, of course. Uh, then we look at uh, HRV, basically normalized by heart rate, which helps you also understanding if you might be in this, uh, situation, saturation condition, uh, the coefficient of variation of, uh, HRV, again, as we were saying before, like things are jumping around much or not. So you, know, you need to put like together many different parameters, I think, to get the best, you know, understanding of what's a big picture. This, um, let's say at the, at the trend level. And then on a day-to-day basis also, there is the fact that normally, you have lower HRV when you're more stressed, but sometimes you might have a much higher score, which is also not necessarily good. Uh, what, we, like, what I do in those cases is really to take more of a like statistical approach. So simply, anything which is outside of your region of normal values is something you should like pay some more attention to. Like, why did that happen? Uh, Look at other subjective metrics, also how you feel, how you slept, um, things that you cannot capture uh, through HRV, like uh, muscle soreness, for example. So we try to include different parameters uh, and to aid the interpretation when things are, let's say, outside of uh, your scope of normal values, which is also, you know, when things are actually interesting. Uh,
0: regarding the sports of you know where heart rate variability is being used, it's mostly endurance sports. But does it have any um, use in, in say sports that are like a uh, power dominated, like like sprints or powerlifting? So for example, if um, heart rate variability is a proxy to parasympathicus state, uh, that could be useful in you know endurance sports. Um, yeah. Do you actually uh, want opposite adaptation in in sports, such as, say, powerlifting, where you want to be, uh, you know, increasing sympathetic activity?
1: Yeah, it's a a good question. I think in general, uh, well, there is definitely a clear link between, you know, indeed, aerobic exercise and uh, physiological stress uh, measured as parasympathetic activity, which is why, you know, there is all this research um, mainly carried out on... uh, individuals doing like intense, uh, aerobic exercise. Um, I think the metric can be used in any sport mainly because as you measure physiological stress, it's about like how strenuous and intense is the effort right often and how that reflects to your body. So as a, as a measure of training load, especially for, um, intense, uh, workouts of people that are like elite athletes or that perform, um, you know, high intensity trainings or matches. It's a very valuable metric to see, let's say, what the status of your system, uh, on the following days. Uh, I would say even in sports where that are not predominantly aerobic. Okay. Thanks. Uh, yeah, let's let's
0: switch our uh, topic a little bit from HRV to machine learning. And as <laughs> as you know, I'm uh, like a beginner practitioner in you know predictive analytics. And uh, for the listeners, Mark, Marco helped helped me tremendously with with some of the analysis I did with uh, injury prediction. Pretty much pointed <laughs> me to the right direction and right books and uh, made me st- start reading a you know Bayesian and data analysis methods <laughs> <laughs> and hierarchical um analysis and things like that. Um, so I wanted to to touch about this topic um because it's a, it's pretty much my interest as well. Um regarding the difference between I would say traditional statistics and machine learning and why that do the, the journals and editors doesn't take more um, more uh, that type of analysis in, in, in research. So why is still a bit, you know, underutilized, say, machine learning compared to traditional statistics?
1: Yeah, so I think um, so mostly the research comes from different communities. In these cases, like, I was saying this also when I was um, doing my PhD, like, it was all technical work and, you know, algorithms and machine learning for, Predicting these variables related to energy expenditure and fitness. So there, there is a let's say a community which works only on the algorithms and like with an approach which is basically almost a black blo- box with respect to physiology. And then on the other side, of course, you have all the physiologists that also use this um, this data and they publish in, uh, I don't know, the Journal of Applied Physiology, or journals where there is, they are more physiology oriented, um, that typically have a different background. So they have a background, a strong background in physiology, uh, which is obviously the, the most important, as you need to understand, like, why certain things happen, and look for, you know, uh, causes, and try to, uh, you know, learn from that. Um However, I think that like even if very slowly, we are going in the right direction. Meaning that like data now is more of a commodity, right? So it's much easier um, to collect data. Like there is apps that are as good as clinical-grade tools. There is uh, more people collecting data. Uh, there is more scientists or engineers that work on these problems. So like as we try. Bring these communities together, like with the with our validation. For example, I worked with um, with Larson and Blues, which have been doing like most of the HRV research in the past few years. So you know, like we start like trying to bring the two things together um, and going a bit more towards uh, a data driven approach. But yeah, <laughs> it's not easy. Like the only time I published a technical journal, in the Journal of Applied Physiology, which is from the less technical community, it was painful, like, <laughs> it took, I don't know, endless uh, rounds of, of reviewing. So it's it's a work in progress, I guess, uh, process to try to, uh, to bring, uh, you know, a more, more of a data-driven and machine learning approach. Uh, to the applied physiology community, but I think there is many people that are open to this uh, right now, and we are, we are making some good progress, even though, you know, it takes always some time mm-hmm. in research. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a proponent
0: of uh, reproducible research and sharing your data and sharing your scripts. Mm-hmm. In this case, Python or R script, uh, you know, make, make sharing and, you know, reproducing the results much easier. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what I'm, you know, reading books and trying, you know, predict- predictive analytics myself, uh, what I saw pretty much is that um, the, the the research now, for for example, on the injury prediction, uh, what they do, they actually don't test the, you know, predictive predictive performance of the model because they don't do, you know, uh, hold out data sets and they don't do cross-validation, yeah, so they just, uh, estimate the model performance on, on a training data set. So,
1: and, or even just report the let's say you do a linear model and, and and report the explained variance by by the model and the variables which still doesn't tell you anything on the predictive ability of this. I think there we really have a, a bit of a disconnect still like coming back to this paper like I wrote. So I use my more, I don't know, machine learning approach but even in evaluating as you say Uh, So cross-validation, leave one subject out, cross-validation. So that's state-of-the-art of validation of algorithms, right? So simply put, you take some of the data to create a method, and then you evaluate on data that is not being seen while you created the model so that you can actually see how it would perform on new subjects, so to speak. And then you repeat that a bunch of times to get a good understanding of how this would work. So I did that. Um... And yeah, well, I didn't get rejected, but you know, I got like lengthy reviews to do because that's not how they look at the problem. So I had actually to go one step back and then do the evaluation, like as you say, just showing, uh, I don't know, the model or uh, the explained variance and then, you know, the variables that are involved in this model without doing any actual prediction. And then the prediction was, you know, like an extra, um, uh, you know, part of the paper was, that was even less relevant to them, even though that's actually the one that tells you how this would work if you were giving it to people. So you I did. think we need to understand each other at a certain point. Um, and try to find you know some common points where we can work
0: on definitely two cultures of data analysis that are colliding as as that uh, famous paper can't can't remember the author um, uh, the 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 one that that approach data analysis as a as a black box and a more interesting you know prediction and yeah. the other culture uh, that are actually interested in the causal relationship between uh, input and output which is pretty much the uh, what what the journal wants and and, and, right. and want to publish.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, both are important. And like, we need to you know uh, work on ways to create like models that both communities understand and value. But uh,
0: yeah, it's
1: it's gonna take some time, I think. In your uh, in your opinion, what
0: you know what, what's gonna be you know, the the big next thing. You know,
1: what what the future will bring. <laughs> so, I don't know, I think that with the, i sorry, can you hear me? Because there is a lot of noise here that are doing
0: like roadworks.
1: Is it terrible or? Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit annoying, but uh, yeah, I can hear you still. <laughs> I am sorry. I just don't know what to do. I will just try to talk. It's like airplane landing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are right like next to me. <laughs> okay. And I have, like my apartment is like tiny, so I can move maximum four meters and then I'm outside of the door. So <laughs> yeah that's how you live in San Francisco. Anyways, so I think like from uh, a technical and algorithmic point of view, like as now we acquire more data uh, and for longer periods of time, like say, you know, we even just with the app, um, you have longitudinal physiological data for individuals for years, with uh, additionally all their um, reference points that they talk, like, you know, subjective scores, and even more interestingly now, you know, you can just link other services, for example, we recently linked uh, Strava, which gives us, you know, objective data on trainings um, and performance, you know, for runners or cyclists, and, you know, you got time, pace, speed, uh, heart rate, all all of that data. So as we gather all this information, I think we have good opportunities to use more data-driven approaches to understand, you know, what's behind optimal performance for different individuals, and... Why certain models work for certain individuals and not for others? What variables are behind these differences? Uh, so I think we can we can make uh, big progress uh, by taking uh, you know this approach of outsourcing data collection to thousands of users and having a tool which is still uh, highly reliable and can get you good data and integrate that with other services, and then we can start you know creating new models and doing things uh, at a scale that is not possible with regular clinical studies where you have um, limit, typically uh, limited uh, sample size. So that's definitely something, uh, you know, I, I keep doing using our data, but I'm also looking forward to see, like, more from, uh, in general, others working in the um, digital
0: health space. And as last question, as, as usual, uh, you know, what resources can you recommend to, you know, strength conditioning coaches, but more, more likely to sports scientists. You know, what type of books? Uh, what would be a good skill to have? And you know, what are you reading? And you know, what what good sources of information do
1: you recommend? Mm-hmm. Uh let's see. I don't know. I I read what really papers more depending more depending on the on the topic I work on. I, I would recommend really like as you like what you're doing like I love it like the starting you know to code and you know blog about especially like blogging about the analysis you do um you know s- step by step like taking a data set and breaking it down and learning how these variables relate and, you know, how to learning how to model things at different levels. I think it can give, um, it, it's extremely valuable today, especially I, I work sometimes now with sports scientists that are at teams and I see that, um, you know, there is a lot going on, um, acquiring like so many different metrics and starting, you know, to look at that, um, People in some other proprietary software, some start to actually do the work themselves and, you know, look at doing some coding in R or in Python. So I think at at this point, that's extremely valuable. Uh, Also, if if we reach, you know, stages where we can share some of this knowledge, as you were saying, and, you know, get it available to others and, you know, build on top of what we are doing, then we can make definitely more progress. And you're also a fan of uh, Nassim Taleb. <laughs> Thanks to you, I am, yes. I, I did read, like, recently The Black Swan, which I loved. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a very interesting perspective, again, for someone that is being always, like, trying to predict things and, uh, <laughs> and working with normal distributions. Yeah, it's, but it's always uh, good to listen to a uh, critique. Yeah, it's very good. It's a... Uh, it's it's very good input and indeed i bought this other book full by randomness which i haven't read yet but i will definitely do that soon okay thanks
0: for everything marco and uh you know good luck with the uh with the startups and good luck with the hrv for training
1: um thank you you for uh, for having me
0: here yeah thanks a lot thanks a lot bye bye thanks Mm